So for the second episode, I was thinking about, I've been following a newsletter by Impactually. And the CEO of Impactually is a woman called Nurit Noble. And she's a behavioral scientist. And I'm thinking about nudging and designing environment sort of on an organizational and societal level. What are your thoughts on this? I think it's definitely a very interesting topic and a very interesting discussion that we need to have more. I think we often talk about human beings and what we personally can do, but when it comes to actually making changes and actually looking at our at our biases and the impact that we make, we also need to look at society at large and we also need to look at companies and organizations that have huge impact in society. So we do also need to be able to have conversations about how they can make that change and how they can be consistent in that change. Um, especially during this year when there's been so many things that's been happening and a lot of companies have started speaking out, we need to remember that it's not just about speaking in the moment. It's about also being proactive in topics and kind of seeing them coming before they become cultural shocks and being able to talk about them beforehand and actually creating structures and creating strategies within the companies that also have a ripple out effect and are able to create change. Sustain, real sustainable change. Exactly. What we're aiming to do here is we're exploring implicit biases from several different angles. And we're really excited to dive deeper into this from your perspective. So would you mind starting off by giving us an introduction so we can under, sort of understand where you're coming at this from? Absolutely. So um, I am a researcher at Stockholm School of Economics, where I focus on human behavior and specifically behavior change. I look at what drives people to certain behaviors uh, and how can we help them change these behaviors. So we're focusing especially on things that perhaps people want to be better at. People want to save more money or um, quit smoking or uh, um, be more environmentally friendly in different ways, etc. So a lot of things where people have their goals, but they don't necessarily manage to make the change happen. And we look at what's standing in the way and how we can help them. So that is what I do as a researcher. And in parallel, I also have a company that I co-founded together with a behavioral economist. So I come more from a background in social psychology. Um, I founded a company with a behavioral economist and we consult in these areas to companies who want to also uh, lead to some kind of behavior change in their organizations, with their employees or outside with their consumers, customers, that's where diversity has often come into the picture in my work, that we've helped a few organizations uh, with both diversity and inclusion. And we can talk about that later if you want. So, yeah, sorry. It's, it's really about this, uh, uh, that we have, uh, an, we have an assumption as behavioral scientists that people mean well and people have good intentions and they overall want to do the right thing, but that it's not so hard because a lot of things come in the way, a lot of biases, as you mentioned. Uh, we have so many things to think about, so many priorities. So sometimes we want to do the right thing, which is either save or be healthy or, you know, recruit in a, in a you know, diversity enhancing manner. 
but things come in the way and it's not always that easy. So indeed we as scientists, as behavioral scientists, take the assumption that people mean well and we just need to help them to promote their goals. So creating the right environments for the actions you seek. Exactly. And this gets us into the concept of nudging. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, could you tell us a little bit what nudging is for those who are not familiar with this concept? And how do we design impactful nudges? Nudging is a concept that has gained a lot of traction in the past decade, I would say. Nudging really simply is a way to change behavior while relying on uh, something that we call behavioral insights. So insights from psychology, from behavioral sciences about how people make decisions, how they behave, and how we can encourage behavior change. Uh, and nudging really can be defined also by what it is not. So nudging is not, for example, a carrot and a stick. It's not about, you know, promising people that if they will do something, we will, you know, incentivize them in some way, we'll give them some incentive, uh, or we will punish them if they don't do it. So nudging has nothing to do with, with money, with giving people money or taking away money. And nudging is also not about removing choice. So it's not about, for example, that if we want um, people to if we want to encourage people to live more healthily or eat more healthily, that we will take away um, sweet or sugary drinks, let's say, and just ban them altogether. So, so nudging is also not about bans or taking anything out of the assortment or about, of the choice set. Nudging is about preserving the choice set as it is, but just rearranging it a bit so that it gives a gentle nudge in the right direction. So for example, with the, with the example of uh, sugar and sugar consumption, maybe we don't take sugary drinks out of the assortment if we are, for example, um, a McDonald's, let's say. Maybe we don't take the sugary drinks out of the assortment, because we still want, you know, some people to be able to to have them. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to act in a paternalistic manner and tell people what to do, but we want to nudge them in the right direction. So we make it, for example, so that the default in the kid's meal is water rather than uh, the sugary drink, for example. And this is actually a real example that was done in uh, Disney parks in the US. So what they did is they actually did redesign all of the restaurants in the parks, redesigned these menus, these meal menus, so that the default in the menus, instead of you know, what it used to be, which is that you have fries as a side dish and, um, and a sugary drink, they rearranged it so that the default was that you had something healthy as a side dish, like cut carrots or a salad or something like that. And uh, I think it was water or milk as a side drink. Uh, and they did this and they saw a, a dramatic uh, reduction in calories because most people did actually um, go with the default with what was. So even though they could change it, they could change it to, you know, I don't want the water, please let me have the sugar drink. They had the option to change it, but they chose to, um, to remain with the default. Um, and that is something that is based on a behavioral insight. And the behavioral insight says that 
since we have a lot of decisions to make every day, we actually try to conserve energy and not make a decision if we can avoid it. So when there is a default, when there is something that if we don't make a choice, it will just happen, we tend to go with it. Uh, we're kind of lazy in that sense. We're, we're really trying to, uh, we're really trying to, actually we're trying to make it. I mean, we have too many decisions to make. We have a huge load, a lot of things that are happening. So because of that, we have the whole default effect that is very strong. And that's one type of nudge. And so that is a little bit about what nudging is and how to, de how to design effective nudges is, uh, I would say a combination between a science and an art. Uh, you really need to um, uh, you really need to spend a lot of time engaging in that process, and that is what we do both as researchers and also helping organizations with this at Impactually. Uh, and what we have done is that we've designed a model to help companies and organizations apply nudges in their work. And so I can tell a little bit about that in terms of how to design effective nudges. So what we start with always is identify the behavior. This model is called the boost model uh, and the initials start with a B, so that's behavior. So we start always with identifying what is the behavior we actually want to nudge towards. Is it, so for example, if we start with an overall goal of that we want, for example, our employees to be healthier, um, then what behaviors fall under that? Do we want them to cycle more to work? Do we want them to take more walking meetings? Do we want them to order more healthy snacks when they have meetings? What is the actual behavior, something that is nudgeable, that is more concrete, that we can nudge towards, rather than a lofty goal of being more healthy? So that's the first process that we do of going from an outcome, like healthy employees, to a specific behavior. Once we've done that work, we go to the second letter, which is the O, obstacle. And here in the obstacle phase, we try to really dig deep and understand what are the barriers that are standing in people's ways to engage in this behavior. Why are they not already doing this today? If we're talking about cycling to work, for example, why are they not doing that today? What, what are the barriers? For example, here we might notice that there's no shower, so or there, there are no good shower facilities. So that's something we want to work on. People are not biking to work because they don't have an option to change once they get there, for example. Or it could be something totally different. In order to then um, assign uh, and implement a good solution, we really need to spend time diagnosing the problem. So understanding what is the right barrier that is relevant here is very important. And in this phase, and this is something that is unique to the nudging and behavioral science methods, um, in uh, contrary to other um, methods like, for example, service design, uh, which are very similar in some aspects, but something that we do here is also connecting it to the theory from behavioral science. What cognitive biases do we see that are operating here? And we that have uh, an education within psychology or um, other uh, branches of behavioral science, we know the type of stuff to look for. We know about cognitive load, about social norms, these kind of things that we look for here. So that's the... 
Exactly, exactly. And things that we as human beings cannot, we cannot decouple it from, from what's always happening. And in order to then design solutions, we need to understand how this is affecting uh, us in this situation. So we've defined the behavior, we've understood the barriers, and now we go to the second O, which is outline solutions or outline potential interventions or nudges. This is the stage in which our knowledge in nudging and the nudging methods comes into life. And particularly, we think about, we, we go out from the barriers that we've identified in the previous stage, and we think, how can we address them with nudges? And because nudges are based on behavioral insights, these insights are very much connected to the barriers. So if we know, for example, that the barrier was a, a, a a wrong social norm, then we can uh, design a social proof nudge to tackle it. So for example, with the, with the cycling um, example, we, maybe we are in an organization that wants healthier employees, they decide that they want more people to cycle to work, they actually spend some time, build some great facilities, you know, there's showers in place, but people are still not using them. But then we see that actually the norm is that no one is doing it and especially no one from the leadership and we understand that more junior employees maybe are reluctant to start this new behavior if no one senior is modeling it so maybe here when we design a nudge we try to turn to the leadership and see can we just convince one of you to just try it out a few times so that you set the right behavior you show that this is something that we encourage in the company and then more people will follow so that's something that that's why it's very important to do this the whole process and understanding the barriers so that we can design and launch. I like I love the way you're combining all of this because in some cases I can imagine you'd go straight to the leadership and try to get the leader to lead these behaviors, but you haven't identified the steps before. So here you're already getting a more holistic solution, and then we have some left. Exactly. And sometimes when you do, as you described, go directly to the leadership, maybe the problem was never with them. Maybe we should have actually gone somewhere else in the organization. The, the mechanisms, they change. The context changes all the time. So it's really important that for every time we do this process, we start over. Every time we design a nudge, we start looking at what's happening here. What are the forces? What are the barriers? What are the things that are at play? Because every time the solution is going to look differently. And that is also why, which brings me to the next stage, after we've outlined the nudge, we, we study. We ideally design a study to really test, does this work? Does this not work? Maybe we have a few ideas and we test them against each other to see what is the most effective. And that is also very important, especially because, as we said, the context matters so much. So with nudging, you know, people often ask me, can you give me the, 10, the top 10 nudges for this problem that I'm having with my employees or with my consumers or customers? And that's impossible to do because the context matters so much. And that's why we always recommend to also proceed to the next stage, which is the testing once we've done all the process. And finally, after we've done the test, then is the last step of the boost model of tailoring. So we get the results of the test, we tweak it, we understand what went wrong, what didn't work, do we need to go back to one of the other stage, to one of the previous stages in the model, Maybe we didn't understand the barrier as well. Maybe we could have designed a better nudge. 
or actually maybe it worked and it's fantastic and then we start think about scaling up the, the nudge. So that is sort of the whole process from start to finish, the boost model, behavior, obstacle, outline, study and tailor. Around creating opportunities, uh, I mean, something that uh, I believe a lot in is, um, is the idea of um, taking away bias from, from any kind of process. And what I've really noticed is that more and more companies are really interested in doing that. And, uh, and they're handling it in different ways. But uh, encouraging candidates that apply to not include a photo, maybe even not include a name in the applications. Some uh, organizations even take it to the extreme, which I recommend, which is taking CV at all out of the equation and really encouraging uh, applicants to just apply by answering the list of questions that the company has defined that these are the questions that show me if a person is capable of doing the job or not. And th these can be questions uh, about it can be a, a, a purely professional matter, for example, giving a, a, a coding task for developers, um, or if we're recruiting a marketing manager or a brand manager, asking them about designing a marketing campaign for a product and just write a bit about that. But whatever it is, um, really trying to take away all these other information that really doesn't belong, shouldn't influence the process, but it does. So again, these hiring managers also come in, and I'm going back to my assumption from the, from the beginning, with good intentions, with all the best intentions of really making the right decision, making the objective decision, but none of us is, ob is objective deep down inside. So the much, as much as you can design a process that helps candidate to apply with as few personal details as possible, uh, the better. So this is something that I've seen more and more companies do. That I think is great. Another thing that I do, I mean, now we talked a little bit about the hiring side, but there's also the side of what happens once people are actually in the organization in the inclusion part of the equation, right? We talk about diversity and inclusion. How do you create an inclusive atmosphere? And I've had the opportunity to work with a few organizations uh, on that. And especially in, for example, the tech sector, you know, sometimes you just do not have the right culture in place. So how do you make these changes in the culture. And one very simple thing that I've worked with clients on is what are the, what are the um, representations that people see around them? Uh, if, if you have a physical office, what are the pictures hanging on the wall? This is, by the way, very relevant in my sort of institution here at the university. There's nothing but pictures of old white men on the wall. That is. Uh, hugely discouraging for young female or um, my other underrepresented minorities students that come in and that's literally the first thing they see and that's something that the university is working on but um, uh, I, I hope that someday we, we can be better but I know that for example in universities such as Harvard uh, in the US where this research comes from they have done a lot of work to okay maybe not take these people out because they are the founders or you know there is a reason why they are there but maybe we complement them with the first woman professor the first person of color professor etc um 
and, and, and here in, in my realm and how I've worked about it with companies is what do you have, what images do you have in your presentations? Uh, do you only show uh, females where it's uh, about beauty products or cleaning products or household products or whatever it is? Or do you also show men? You know, what kind of, you know, maybe things that you haven't noticed, uh, can you see there? So thinking about these things and also uh, designing them in a way, uh, that's something that can go a long way in creating this inclusive atmosphere that a lot of people want to create in the organization. But again, it's these things that you don't think about that maybe you should. And there's several reasons for wanting to create that. One being just the innovative capacity of having a diverse set of people being able to contribute and filling um, uh, as, as they belong in the environment. So I really like that example. Yeah. And sticking on this positive note, what are some of the positive changes you're seeing currently? Uh, what, what gets you excited right now? Yeah, so many things. And I mean, I think that also if we, if we look for a silver lining in, in the events of, of past months, um, and I think that we should. I mean, there's, there's many things that have happened. You know, many people have been in, in pain. And I'm thinking about, you know, what has happened in the U.S. as well uh, with Black Lives Matter. Um, I think that this has really brought to the surface the need the, for diversity and the, re, the need to also redesign certain institutions uh, and certain organizations. And I have seen personally and I myself also acted in this way, a lot of people who really want to learn and want to, um, want to engage in discussions and um, uh, you know, want to buy books. I mean, I remember that uh, at a certain point, I think when, when events really culminated, I wanted to order a lot of books to just learn more. Uh, and, and a lot of the books were out both in uh, like in the three major websites of buying books in Sweden, uh, there's there's one book called White Fragility that was just impossible to to order anywhere. Uh, at the end, I, I got it, but I was just very excited to see that other people, just like myself, are uh, are wanting to learn more. And I think that this has also uh, encouraged a lot of organizations, kind of gave them the right nudge, if you will to start thinking more seriously about diversity and inclusion. Um, because other than all the fantastic reasons which we are aware of, and exactly as you say, uh, more creativity, better financial gains, we know that uh, all of these things are associated with diversity. But I would also say that there is, uh, I believe, a moral obligation um, also for your employees. And I know with one of the companies that I've worked with, when they took me in to help them uh, design more diverse uh, recruiting practices, they really told me, like, we don't think that it's fun to only be white, you know, guys. Um, like, we're a bunch of developers, like, it's a tech company, but even we think that it's boring, you know? So I think that a lot more people are coming to these realizations and, uh, and are acting up on it. So I think that that's a really positive change. And I look forward to see what, what more, you know, how much more we can push ourselves and how much more towards diversity. I think it's been a long time coming and I hope for positive changes in the future. 
I love that answer. And <laughs> working with uh, what I do, uh, many problems can seem as a learning issue, but I really think there's something there. If we all on an individual level get more insights to the questions at hand or evidence based in our learning, I think we can move forward faster than it coming strictly from the top. So I totally agree there. Yeah.